How good is it to be in the house of God? The house of God is a good place to be. And you know what? The house of God isn't just a place that's built of bricks and mortar. In the Old Testament, when they want to build a temple to God, God says, why? I'm not a God who dwells in houses made of bricks and stone. You know, the house of God is a place that we dwell every day. If we are the people of God, if we are the children of God, if He is our Father, then it's a place that we dwell within every day, stepping into our bed at night, when we go to work, when we come to church on Sunday. If we are the children of God, then we are in the house of God. God. How good is it to be in the house of God? How good is it to walk through life knowing that we are the children of God, those who are blessed and walk in God's faithfulness? God is good. How good is it to be in the house of God? Amen. This morning, I want to do some, some business. I want us to start to do some business with, with God. I want us to start to look at our life, to look at the year that's been and maybe even the years that have been behind us and start to live and uh, let go of some of the things that have held us back for years and years and years. And that is the heritage of those that live in the house of God, freedom, you know, every prodigal is welcomed back into the house of God. Every person who has lived uh, away from the house is welcomed back. In the house of God, there is blessing. In the house of God, the fattened calf is, is taken and, and given uh, to the prodigal. You know what? The house of God is a place where you are welcome. You are welcome in the house of God. It is a house of welcome. It is not just a house uh, that is for a few, uh, a few special people who can live up to a very high standard. None of us could make the standard, but the Father paid the debt. Isn't that good? The Father sent His Son so the debt might be paid. And this morning, we're going to start to know what it means to live in the house of God, to live free from the house of sorrow, the house of grief, the house of pain. We're going to start to think about what it means to live in the house of of God and start to leave some things behind. Let's pray as we get started this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thank you, thankful for, for what you have done for us. We are thankful for your gifts to us. Let us hear your word this morning with an open heart, Lord Jesus. Let us hear what uh, you want to say to us and help us, Lord God, to let go of the things that have held us back, that have hurt us, that our past uh, has tethered us to, that we view the world through, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, this morning to move through and live in your house. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm known to cry. I think that's pretty, pretty well known. If you're in the East, you've seen it. You've seen it a lot, probably. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, crying, a crying man. The weeping man. It's almost like a Renaissance painting. Uh, Nathan, the weeping man. I think, it's, I think it's the Italian in me that really brings out uh, this, this crying at the drop of a hat. You saw it this morning. Um, and, and it's either if something incredibly sad has happened or something incredibly happy has happened or something incredibly funny has happened. In fact, me and Charles go on this journey all the time. We'll be on the phone to each other. We'll just start being, you know, oh, I'm getting all emotional. I'm starting to cry. I mean, 
really Italians find themselves at two ends of a spectrum. And it's a, and it's a, it's a vast spectrum from each other. They're the Italians who will cry at anything. Oh, you ate my sphingy. Oh, you ate a cannoli. You're a growing boy. Still a growing boy, but it's just a different way. And then the other, the other Italians are the other side of the spectrum who set their face like a flint. It can be the worst moment in all of, all of the world. And they're still like the statues on Easter Island, unmoved, uh, not crying, not really, not really shedding a tear for anything. So there's that spectrum. Then there's the other side, which is Charles and me. The, uh, they're crying at the drop of a hat. You know, a few years ago, Chanel and I, we're watching um, television and a Kleenex ad came on. And it's just this moment. The mother wiping, wiping the tears away from her, her son's eyes on his wedding day. The father kneeling down and wiping the snot off their child's nose. And I just started to cry. I didn't start crying like just a single tear. Like I started to, to cry, cry. Like I started to, to weep. And it was just this big moment. It wasn't the aloe vera that made the, the, the tears come out. I wasn't impressed by the, the soothing properties of the, the aloe vera. I was, uh, I was moved because... I had defined myself as something and I had thought to myself, I will never, I will never experience the things that these actors on a Kleenex ad are portraying. I will never wipe the boogers from my child's face. I'll never walk a girl down the aisle or have a first dance. I'll never have these significant moments that this Kleenex ad is portraying. And for many years, that's how I defined myself as, childless and childless for good. Many of you know my story. When I met Chanel, I told her, you better not expect children. I'm never gonna have them. I can't have them. But I defined myself in a certain Way And over the years, there have been Huggies ads that are difficult to watch, movies that carried a lot of pain because of how I saw myself and of what I had tethered myself to, because of the house that I lived in emotionally, a house that was, had a foundation of childness, childlessness, of barrenness and pain. It's because that's who I saw myself as, who I was. Everything in my worldview had become shaped by the pain of not being able to have a child. The lens through which I viewed the entire world was tainted by infertility. It was tainted by that inability to naturally have a child. The whole lens that I viewed the world through was, was uh, tainted by uh, 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars that were thrown into IVF unsuccess, unsuccessfully. The, the almost 50 embryos that we saw uh, uh, tried to be um, uh, uh, grown and never grew. The three miscarriages uh, that I had and uh, uh, the divorce that I eventually went through. All the garbage that I traipsed through my life. I defined myself by the way that, and what I had walked through. That was the definition, the whole lens of how I saw the world. And it controlled how I made decisions. That pain that I held, that foundation that I held in my life controlled me and kept me in prison, a prison of pain. But by God's grace, by God's amazing grace, the life that I left in ruins, God helped restore. The framework that I had built that was garbage, God tore down and placed a new foundation on His house. The child that I said I would never hold is in my arms. The wife that I thought I didn't deserve after all I had done is here in Chanel. The season of my life has changed, but if the lens through which I view my life doesn't significantly change, then I'm still bound to the old life. If I'm still wearing a heavy jacket, a jumper and winter clothes in summer, then I'm not prepared for the season that I am in. We need to be wearing the right attire, viewing our world through the right lens for the season that we're living in. Significance is prepared for in seasons of barrenness. The seed that is sown in a time of difficulty and upheaval, without it, there would be no new growth when it comes to the season that it will spring out of the ground. It's a hard lesson to learn that even in barren seasons, in seasons that seem fruit, fruitless, we need to continue to plant. We need to be, continue to water. We need to continue to fertilize. Even when all seems lost, we need to continue to build on the right foundation and have faith that the season will change and be prepared for that change to come. How we prepare in difficult seasons defines our future success. How we plant in barrenness defines our future fruitfulness. It took me way too long to understand this truth. And as a result, I walked through painful seasons much longer than I needed to, and I created even more painful seasons for myself. And this morning, as we look through the lens of a bit of how my journey and what I've walked through to where I've come through with, you know, the dedication of Scout and all, all of that this morning, I want to look at four women in the Old Testament who walked uh, 
walked through a difficult fertility uh, journey. And these four key Old Testament women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, all of whom had exceptionally significant children, all of whom's children would shape the nation of Israel. Their infertility later defining the great significance of each of their children. Now, when we talk about barrenness this morning, it's easy to say, well, I don't understand that. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to my situation. Well, for many people, that is exactly how it's going to apply to their situation. The, the journey of infertility, the ch- journey of child loss, the, the uh, journey of losing a, 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 a family member or miscarriage, that's going to apply very really and very acutely to some people's lives. But for some people, it's not going to apply as easily. But when we look at barrenness, we can apply these principles to many areas of life, financial seasons of life. We can apply it to seasons of sickness and health. We can apply it uh, to work situations or relationships. So listen to the principles this morning. Hear the principles. These women, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the mother of Isaac, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, the mother of Jacob and Esau, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, mother of Joseph and Benjamin, um, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, the mother of Samuel. And she actually had uh, about seven other children after Samuel. Each of them unable to have children, but by God's grace, a miracle happened. Their situation changes dramatically. And it's really important to note, it's really important to know that in the Old Testament, when a woman was defined as barren, that was a source of great shame for a woman. That was a source of public shame. But when a woman who was known as barren brings forth a child, that is a signal of great significance for the child. That is a signal that that child is of incredible significance because the thing that the couple could not overcome by themselves has been overcome by God's help. But in each situation, though God reaches in and changes it, in each situation, each woman deals with this situation in varying ways, some positive and some unbearably negative. Sarah, in Genesis 18, Abraham is talking to some visitors. And one of the visitors in his camp, we later fi- who we later find out to be the Lord, helps Abraham, uh, tells Abraham that within a year, he and Sarah will become pregnant and bear a child. Now, remember, this is 90-year-old Sarah and almost 100-year-old Abraham. Like, this, is, this is old people having babies here. This is stuff you read about in the Herald Sun that would be on a current affair, some, you know, some tabloid rag, you know, you'd open up TV Week. Is TV Week one of those, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't read those magazines. Some people do. Um, my mother-in-law was talking about New Idea the other day. So I don't know if, if you read New Idea. No, but not into gossip. I get it. But these, 
Sarah is listening, overhearing from her tent in Genesis 18, uh, verses 10 to 14. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. I'd bet that way past. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm, that, now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. In her old age, understandably, Sarah disbelieves the promise of God and it's indicated by this laugh. It's unbelievable to her. It's far-fetched. It's akin to a joke. Imagine that. My nonna having a baby. My, my nonna's here, by the way. She's just having a good laugh at it. Then we go to Rebecca. And we read that she struggled to have children. And Isaac, in Genesis 25, from verse 2, Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? There's something in this that questions the nature of the gift as the boys Jacob and Esau struggle within her. There is a sense in Rebecca's story that of this is not what I expected it to be. Why is this happening to me? She wanted this, but why is this happening to me? This is not what I hoped it to be. There is an apprehension towards what she thought the situation would be like. In the case of Rachel, after what can only be described as having to deal with the worst father-in-law ever, where deceit saw Jacob marrying the wrong woman. No offense, but I would be really been really disappointed on my wedding day, Rob, if I got to the front of the, the church, did the whole marriage thing, and Talisha was there, not Chanel. Like that would, my goodness. Jordan would have been upset as well. There would have been great weeping in the house of Flannery and Wakeland that day. The Husbros would have been no more. And here's Jacob married to the wrong woman, not the woman that he loved, another, another lady. And then Jacob has to work again for another seven years in order to marry Rachel, the woman that he loved. And to Rachel's sorrow, she cannot have children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, this is in Genesis 30 verse 1, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. You can hear it, can't you? The desperation, the pain. 
the hurt, the bitterness, the jealousy rising up. Give me children or I'll die. It's not worth living if I don't have children. But here's Rachel, loved by her husband, adored by Jacob. In fact, loved way more than Jacob's other wife, Leah. But Rachel is jealous and in her sorrow demands of Jacob, give me a child. This is one of the saddest stories in Scripture, in my opinion. Leah is unloved. She's unloved, but is given children as a comfort because she has no one who loves her. Even her father betrayed her. But Rachel, who is adored, who is loved beyond anything, her womb is closed and grows jealous, impatient, and bitter. And like Sarah did long before her, her impatience leads Rachel to have Jacob produce children with her maidservant. In Genesis 30, verse 3, then she said, Here is Bilah, my servant. Sleep with her so she can bear children for me. And I too can build a family through her. Rachel eventually bears uh, two children of her own, Joseph and Benjamin. But we read in Genesis 35, Rachel dies in childbirth, naming the son that she is born that day, Ben-Onan, which literally means son of my sorrow. She defines Benjamin. She defines her heritage. She defines the thing that she longed after for so long by her pain. She defines that child that she had desired for a long time by her pain. Imagine the heritage of a son whose, whose brother's names mean things like happy. Asher means happy. Simeon means God hears. Judah means God be praised. And in amongst all of this, a son defined as son of my sorrow. Thankfully, Jacob renames him to Benjamin, son of my right hand. But she defined Benjamin by her sorrow that day. In seasons of difficulty, in seasons of barrenness, we risk defining even the answers to our prayers poorly because how we have positioned ourselves in the season of waiting. And we see this so acutely in the lives of these three women who without any doubt, without any doubt faced incredible pain and had to carry incredible sorrow in a time where infertility was viewed as a curse from God. And it, by the way, if you think infertility is a curse from God, take that piece of theology, scrunch it up and chuck it in the bin because it is garbage and it hurts people. What an incredible shame they had to deal with. A shame that many of us could not even begin to understand. But many of us can. And here's Sarah, whose laugh portrayed her difficulty believing. It's not hard to see why. 
a 90-year-old woman bearing a child would have difficulty believing. A woman that's older than my grandmother by 10 years. Sarah was so focused on her understanding of reality that the Word of God to her and Abraham was if it was a joke. It was unbelievable, laughable. And we could apply this to ourselves. As time passes for us, when the promise of God seems to tarry on for a long time and it seems more far away, the promises of God seem more unbelievable to us, laughable even. In both the life of Sarah and Rachel, we see impatience take hold. They make rash decisions because they cannot bear to wait any longer. And again, Sarah has good reason to be impatient. So she gave Hagar to Abraham because she hadn't produced a child and was 90 years old. But God had heard her desires. God had other plans. And Rachel's jealousy overwhelmed her to the point of doing anything to have a child. Once again, making Jacob sleep with her maidservant to produce a child. Isn't that like us? That when we're in pain, we are so keen to get out of that situation, we will make rash, terrible decisions that even go against the heart of God. In the case of Rebecca, even when uh, uh, the prayers for a child had been answered, there is a new difficulty to focus on. There is a sense that it questions the goodness of God's gifts to her. I think we could all Think of someone like that, who having endured years of pain, years of hardship, becomes either anxious or negative in their outlook, even when they're being blessed. Even blessings become curses. And when we look at Rachel, there was anger at God and those around her. She's jealous of Leah. She's upset that Jacob has not been able to give her a child. And the thing that she wanted so badly turned into bitterness. Rachel, although loved, unlike Leah, due not to being able to have children, becomes defined by her sorrow, jealousy and bitterness. How overwhelmingly sad is that? And how cautionary to all of us. Let me be clear, these things have nothing to do with gender. The way Sarah, Rachel and Rebecca responded to these incredibly painful situations are not because they're women. We all feel these things in seasons of difficulty. Men and women grow jealous, impatient, angry, sorrowful, depressed. And we've all navigated difficult times in a way that we wish we could change. But it is a common theme in these women's story of childlessness that serves to highlight in us what we're like when we have need for divine intervention. The thing is, when everything changes, When all of our prayers are answered, the framework of life we built in the season of difficulty still exists. It becomes a prison that we built in our season of sorrow, a lens that we view all of our life through. Pain, 
The difficult seasons of life can make people feel cheated, angry, self-focused, bitter, lonely, isolated, resentful, guilty, sad, anxious, worried, depressed. This is called the grief lens. And you know what? In difficult situations, it is perfectly reasonable to grieve. There is no sin in grieving. Grieving is not a sin. No matter what people will tell you, that you need to be jolly all the time and, you know, the misinterpretation of the joy of the Lord is my strength. It doesn't mean that you're a cackling fool at a funeral. God created you to grieve. Grieving's part of life. He designed us to fully feel pain. The trouble is, these negative feelings can cause those feeling them to reach conclusions and hold on to beliefs that are excessively pessimistic, that are negative and completely untrue. And it's our failure to acknowledge how these difficult seasons can and have had impact on our worldview, our perceptions of God and others that becomes really dangerous to us. Psychologists call it a negative affect. Some brief digging into what constitutes negative affectivity shows that people with a negative effect may be more likely to find uh, depressing, cynical, and suspicious explanations for even good events. They may feel as though uh, their lives are globally awful. They believe uh, that they... Uh, people around them are, are totally awful, that them, them themselves are globally awful and believe that the reality of their life will never change. Instead of heading out into the world to find evidence to the contrary, uh, someone with a negative or even positive effect uh, may only pay attention to things that prove them Right. It's called uh, in, in psychology and behavioral science a confirmation bias. You look for the thing that ticks your belief system. Uh, confirmation bias is our tendency as people to ignore things that challenge our way of thinking and instead paying attention only to the things uh, and gathering information and remembering information that only affirms our even wrong beliefs. Be careful what you build. Be careful what you plant. Be careful what you cultivate in the season of barrenness. The effect that we cultivate is the way that we will see the world. And even though it may be way off from the truth, we will lean into it, affirming our wrong way of thinking. And that's how it becomes a prison for us. The house you build in the day of sorrow is a terrible place to live. It's a terrible place to live. The foundations are wrong. The house is built on foundations of disbelief, apprehension, anxiety, impatience, jealousy, bitterness and sorrow. It's a terrible house. Everything that you build on that foundation will fall into garbage. I can tell you because I've built a house on that foundation and it fell. 
Its outcomes will have you understanding the nature of God poorly, yourself wrongly and others negatively. A few years ago, I was privileged to be in Cambodia with my father-in-law as a part of a rescue team with Destiny Rescue. We would go into places, many of you may have heard this story before, we would go into places where children were used and abused in horrible ways that you could not even begin to imagine. And would go into those places and would meet with these young children and try and get them out of that situation, offer them a new life, a new way uh, of, of being able to live, a new way of, of income, out of that painful situation, trafficking situation. And we are in this bar one night and a girl sat next to me. And as I looked at this girl, I thought, she's small. And we play this game as we're playing Connect Four in a bar with this girl offering herself to men my age who are way older. We play this game to find out how old the girl was. Now, as I'm playing Connect Four, I said, oh, my name's Flano. My father-in-law called me that. I'd stuck. My name's Flano. I'm born in the year of the rat. So my favorite food is rat. That's, uh, that's Rob over there. And what was, what, you were born in the year of the buffalo. So, he, so his favorite food was buffalo. Dog, it's dog. Yeah, that's right. It was better than. So, so if, if my favorite food is rat and Rob's favorite food is dog, what's your favorite food? And she said, dragon. My favorite food is dragon. And at that point of time, that meant that that girl was 11 or 12 years old, sitting in a bar, offering herself to be used and abused by a man my age, how incredibly, incredibly sad. So we made a time to meet up with her after uh, that night to try and offer her a way out. You know, we offered her uh, education options, employment options, places to live, the option to get out of that horrible situation. And everything that we did seemed to fall on deaf ears. And it was because she had an older sister and this older sister who had most likely been exploited in the very same way as this young 11-year-old girl. This older sister had no sympathy for this little girl. It was almost like she relished the fact that her sister had to go through the same things. And we sat with this young girl in a cafe in Phnom Penh called the Blue Pumpkin. And as we offered her all of these things, she began to cry. She began to lose her emotions. 
And she just began to repeat, I can't, I can't, my sister won't let me, I can't, my sister won't let me. And she walked out of that cafe that day and left back to who knows what. All because her sister was trapped in the prison of her pain and wouldn't let her own younger sister, her own flesh and blood be free. That young girl's older sister had experienced pain that I could never understand, but she built her life on it. And the moment, when the moment came that she could have said, yes, today is the day of freedom for you, the day that she could have brought life to her sister, the grief lens that she viewed her world through tainted everything. The framework, the house that she had built on the foundations of pain was garbage and it had a heritage for people beyond her years. But then there's Hannah. We can go through the slides to the Hannah slide. That'll be good. But then there was Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah shows a different story. There was a certain man from Ramathane, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, and the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, whose son Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Uh, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his hometown to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. The two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah uh, to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival Peninnah provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to you, Hannah, why are, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Now this isn't the most male thing that's ever said. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Men often think of themselves fairly highly in that, in that category. Once they had finished, they, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor 
will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and he and she and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah is the picture of righteousness in a difficult season, in a season of barrenness. She is endlessly mocked, but she is gracious. She displays endurance through the mocking of Peninnah and enduring faith in the temple. She is loved by her husband, but not demeaning of him or others. Uh, she is not in, she's in pain, but not defined by it. She is determined not to be defined as a sinful woman. And here she is crying so bitterly in the temple that no sound comes out of her mouth. Have you ever sat with someone who's crying that bitterly? Have you ever sat someone with someone whose pain is so deep that no words can even come out of their mouth? That is just silent crying. It's gone beyond the point of wailing. It's gone beyond the point of sobbing. It's gone to the point of absolute inner pain where everything is just coming out as a silent cry. And here she is praying a secret prayer in her heart. The only time this is found in the Old Testament, a secret prayer, a prayer in her heart. She's there secretly holding on to these things. She's given bad advice and she's given bad interpretations of what she's like, but she doesn't grow bitter and she doesn't lash out. She shares her need with Eli and they pray together and she keeps her vows to God and they dedicate her son Samuel to the temple. And that son anointed the King David. The heritage of David had the line of Jesus in it. That was Hannah's heritage. The heritage of her faithfulness is the son of God who redeemed this world. What an amazing woman of faith. We all have things that we're longing for that haven't happened in the way that we thought they would or should. Life is seasonal. It can change quickly. And as we come into a new year, some of us will find it awash with blessings and some of us will find it a difficult season. We will wrestle with things in our seasons of sorrow and seasons of waiting uh, in difficult seasons. But Hannah teaches us how to navigate the seasons of waiting 
well, she shows unwavering faith in the capacity of God to move into her situation. Hannah shows restraint to Peninnah, Elkanah's other wife. Even though she mocks Hannah, she extends grace and respect to Peninnah, the priest Eli, and her husband Elkanah. Even when they give her cause to lash out, she extends her plea to God in her heart, but also extends it to Eli so someone can pray with her. In all four situations, God hears the woman's cry, but Hannah rejoiced with a future hope. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, Hannah prays, He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Her revolutionary prayer as she dedicates Samuel to the temple talks about a future king. And this is a time there was not even a monarchy in Israel. There was no monarchy. There was no king in Israel, but she blesses the king that is to come. She prophesies the throne of David and with double meaning, the coming kingship, the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Hannah understands that God's work in our lives has generational impact. It doesn't start, stop with us. What is tethered to us, we carry through to our children. Hannah persists in prayer, but builds her house not on sorrow, but the conviction that God is good, that God is faithful. I'm gonna ask the whole band to come back up because I wanna do some business this morning with God. God has graced us to endure in difficult seasons as a sign of His faithfulness. The Apostle Paul, as he prayed for a thorn in his sign, side, um, some translations also say a messenger of Satan to be taken away three times, but God responds to him differently. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made manifest in the waiting. Not when all our prayers are answered, but when they're unanswered. How we behave in the waiting is a ministry is a witness to God's grace. Hannah waited well and received well. Four women, all of whom faced the same difficult situation, all of whom saw the promise of God, but had vastly different reactions. What is our reaction to the seasons that we're in? Good or bad? What framework are we building? Not only in difficult seasons, but seasons of abundance. When all is going well, do we become like Peninnah, who simply mock those who are going through seasons of difficulty? In the waiting, let's endeavour to be like Hannah. Faithful and faith-filled. Setting a good foundation, a good framework for seasons to come. He is a God who answers prayers. He is a God who sees us. He is a God that hears us. He is a God that answers us. And we are gonna bring some things to God this morning. The seasons of life that you have gone through, yes, they have war warranted grief. Yes, they have warranted sorrow. Yes, they have been painful, but don't be enslaved by it. This is the last Sunday 
of 2019. This is the last Sunday of this decade. The things that you are tethered to, the things that you've been hurting, that have been holding you back, that have been a, a lens which you're viewing your whole world through, it's time to let it go. It's time to live unbound, untethered. It's time to let them go. It is time not to be enslaved by a disbelief. It is not a time to be enslaved by bitterness. It is not a time to be enslaved by impatience. It is not a time to be enslaved by questioning, anger and jealousy, even by arrogance or triumphant behaviour. It is a time to lay these things at the feet of the cross and let Jesus reframe our lives reframe the decade, reframe our new year in a new way. We need to let things go this morning. So we're going to bring our requests for 2020 to the altar. We're going to pray that we leave the garbage that we have carried for the year gone or years gone behind, that we might live untethered to the garbage foundations that we built in the time of sorrow and live on the foundations of the house of God. In God's house, there is freedom. In God's house, there is freedom. In God's house, there is freedom. And there is freedom for every one of you. So why don't you stand with me? 